We come together to continue celebrating. Not our freedom in our country, but our freedom in Christ. And as such, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you, you know, we celebrated um, our victory of independence this week, right? We, we, we celebrated the signing of the, the Declaration of Independence on the 4th, and, and, you know, there was a wonderful display here in town, and we see the, the, the fireworks going off in the air, and, and, uh, and my children this week had a very insightful question. Why do we do this? You know, we, we like the fireworks and stuff, but their question is, why don't we just do fireworks every day? You know, aside from the fact that, you know, you're, you're lighting money on fire, um, why, why, why is it that we don't just celebrate the 4th of July every day? Why, why, don't, we, why don't we do that all the time? And, and, and it's a great question. Why, why do we every year on on Typically, now this year we got blessed with gorgeous weather, but typically it's the most miserable day of the year. It's hot, muggy, and, and you're just, you torture yourself by going outside to stand and smoke. Why is it that we do that every year to celebrate our independence? To celebrate something that happened, a battle that was won over 230 years ago. Why, why do we do that? Why do we gather each year to do those things? Well, we gather each year to do those things to celebrate that victory and to be reminded of our independence, right? Just like we sang, we, we, we celebrate these things and, and to be reminded of these things. This, this victory is a declaration of our independence, of our, of our freedom. In the same way... In this passage today, we see the declaration of Christ's victory. Christ, our victor. The one who has secured our victory for us. So the main idea of today's text is fight the battle that's already been won. Fight the battle that's already been won. And in order to understand this, we have to understand this in context. Now, last week we looked at verses 13 through 17, which are intricately tied to this passage. They're, they're, they're deeply tied to this passage, so much so that I intended to preach them together, but I ask because of the difficulty of this text, uh, um, I, I, I spread it out um, so that we could spend a little more time diving into um, some of these difficult areas. But we have to understand the context is in 13 through 17. And in 13 through 17, Peter is giving us this declaration that there is blessing and suffering. And I told you last week that's just crazy, right? The idea that there is blessing and suffering is abnormal, that we can be blessed when we are persecuted, that when we can be blessed when we're suffering. And our, our text today is going to ground that for us. It is the motivation behind that. It is the, the um, security of how we can endure suffering and know that we are going to be blessed is found in verses 18 through 22. So with that in mind, 
I'm going to I'm going to read for us. I'm going to start in verse 13 and read through 22 just to give us context so we can remember what we discussed last week. So 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For, this is our text for today, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and, uh, at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word for us this morning. And though it be a difficult text, it is not an unsurmountable text. Though it be something that is a little bit confusing in points, it is something that has a great deal of hope for you and I. So as we go through this, I want to remind you of a good Bible rule of thumb. This is something you need to put in your back pocket. So when you're reading your Bible and you come to a difficult text, you need to remember this rule of thumb. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when you're reading through the Bible and you come to difficult text, and you're like, I just don't quite understand that. That's when we begin looking at other passages that address the same subject, that are maybe a little bit clearer, or a little bit more... Um, understandable at the moment, and they help us to understand those passages. So this morning we will be looking at lots of scriptures, but this is our focus, and those scriptures will be used as just an effort to explain this. So as we begin, we begin by seeing Christ's plan for our victory. Christ's plan for our victory. In verse 18, we have this, this plan um, stated for us, and it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, this is not the first time that Peter refers to Christ's sufferings as motivation for our life. Matter of fact, he refers to them in, in chapter 2, verse 21, and he also alludes to them in chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through um, 5, and saying that we're built together in the same way, and this, this idea of the house and the stumbling block. So Peter is not 
immune to using Christ's suffering as an example for you and I. He's going to continue to do so in his book. But for Peter, his suffering is not merely an example. It's something better than an example. How many times in the Christian life have we heard people refer to Christ merely as an example? That, that, is, that is all he is. And if Christ were merely an example, then what I would tell you today is to walk out of this room, go, go and, and, and die on a cross so that other people might come to know God. But that's not what's going to happen to us, is it? And a matter of fact, even if that is what happened, it would not secure for you and I a salvation for somebody else. Why? Because I have my own sins to bear. I have my own unrighteousness, my own sinfulness. That is why it says here, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Only Christ, only Jesus, the one who is holy God, who is without sin, can suffer in our place. Because he is the only one that can declare that he is without sin. He is the only one that doesn't deserve his just punishment for his own sins. He's the only one that can die on our behalf as a perfect lamb because he's the only one that is perfect. Amen? I mean, you're all giving me blank stares. Is there somebody else in here that's perfect? Because if so, the point of this message goes out the window. He's the only one that can do that for us. He's the only one that can die once for sins because he himself had not died. But notice it says once for sins. Now, Peter oftentimes, and especially in this passage, is going to continue to go back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, what do we have year after year, month after month, day after day happening at the temple? Is there one animal that dies? No. It is is literally a, a bloodbath. Just a constant flowing of blood from the temple of sacrifices because people keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. Martin Luther described his experience with coming to know Christ as gracious in this way. He was the kind of man that, uh, he was a priest in the Catholic Church, and so every day he would go and do penance. But, but, the op- but it got to the point to where he had to do so many penance that he never left the confessional. They would have people rotate in and out of the confessional to handle all of his penance. Because he knew that he he could not ever confess all of the sin in his life. He knew that even though he was a priest, even though that he was in this this facility and, and he was separated from the world and those sins, his heart was continuing to produce more and more and more sins so that even if he confessed all of them, it would take the entirety of his life and he could not run out of sins to confess. You and I are the same way. This morning, coming to church, we probably had a multitude of sins cross our hearts and minds. Maybe it was just mere worry and not trusting God to handle the things that we know he will. We see here that Christ was without sin. No sin. You and I could spend our whole lives confessing our sin and never come to an end of our sins. And yet Christ was without sin, thus he died once. Once. It was accomplished once. 
you and I cannot add to the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of our sins. We, we cannot make something more on top of this. We cannot, we cannot subtract from this. Christ's sacrifice was perfect, so perfect it only took one time. That's something that we can attest for our own sufferings, that we can get everything out of one suffering. We can, we can, we can understand that. So, so we see in this passage that he died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. As I've, as I've already said, so I won't, I, I won't um, go too much further in this idea, but he is the one that is righteous. We are unrighteous. Christ died on our behalf. It was this exchange. It was this, this trading of, of his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And talk about the deal of the century, right? He, he is giving us everything, his perfection, his, his righteousness is being imputed, if you will. It's, been, it's being a, given into our account. Uh, Paul gives the idea of, uh, of, a, um, of a bank account. It's as if Jesus had an infinite supply of righteousness and he deposits it all into our account. And we have an infinite supply of debt and he takes all of that debt and puts it on himself. The righteous for the unrighteous. He died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that is quite the plan. That, that is a big ordeal. That he would take the weight of all of God's children's sins upon himself and give us all of his righteousness. Why would he do such a thing? It says in the text that he might bring us to God. You see, we have all the same problem. Our problem is not our suffering. Our problem is not our temptations. Our problem is not our circumstances. Our problem is not the struggles we face every day in life. Our problem is that you and I are separated from God. Our problem is described as starting in Genesis 3 when man sins and is thrown out of the presence of God because of his sin. And that's where we find ourselves. Christ's plan is to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God, that we who were once enemies and foes might be brought to one another, that we might no longer be enemies and foes but children. That is a, a huge plan for us. That is, that is something that is beyond anything we can imagine. That we might be brought back to God. Well, how is he going to accomplish this? By being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. By being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this is where the disagreements over this text begin. We haven't even made it through the first verse. And if I were to take a poll of the translations in this room, from this point through verse 22, they're all going to be drastically different. 
So as I go through this, I, and I'm, I'm, I know that there's a plethora of translations sitting in front of me. I'm asking you to understand that, that me saying these things is not because I have a particular translation in front of me or even my translation disagrees with how I understand this text. As I look at these passages and we seek to apply Scripture to these passages, we need to understand what it means, what it, what it means in, its, in its context. So bear with me if it... If there's some contradictions here, it's not for lack of um, unity. It's for lack of understanding of how these fit together. So he says he was being put to death in the flesh. Put to death in the flesh. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus in his plan knew that it was important that he become flesh and blood, that he take on human form like you and I. Hebrews also goes on to say that he was tempted and tried in every way that you and I are. Because he, he took on flesh, or as, as other passages say, he emptied himself of all but love that he might be humbled because he knew that we could not comprehend these things. Christ took on flesh and died a a earthly death that we cannot we, we in Christian culture we, we, we become so accustomed to talking about this thing yet seeing Christ seeing the cross being displayed everywhere that it becomes almost cute if that makes sense it becomes almost cliche that well I've got a cross around my neck so I'm good right or I've got, a, I've got a cross on my bumper, so I'm, I'm good. Or, or, or I've got, got a cross on my bumper. We, 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 we talk about it and use it in such a way that it almost becomes cliche. But as we read these things, we need to understand that this is describing the real death of a real person on our behalf. This is not a, a cliche or cute thing that we get used to. But he was crucified on our behalf. But that's not the end of the story. He wasn't just put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Now, some of your translations may have a little s there. You may have a little, a little s in your translation there for spirit. Um, that's a very difficult phrase. Because sometimes it refers to individual spirits and sometimes... Uh, or the, the spirit realm, and sometimes it refers to the spirit, the, the Holy Spirit. And it's my understanding from this and the rest of Scripture that Christ was made alive by the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. Consider with me the passage from Romans 9, 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit, capital S, is, li is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I mean, I mean this is important that we understand this because it unpacks the rest of the passage. So, hear what I say here. If the spirit, big S, of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead. It was by the power of the Spirit. Acts refers to the same act, giving it to God as the one who raised Christ from the dead. If the Spirit of Him who raised Him from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, what he's talking about here is Peter is giving a snapshot of this. Christ was buried in death, but risen by the Spirit. The same way that you and I are buried in death and risen and given new life by the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Where we see this most often is right behind me. Where you and I see this, we, we see this proclamation in this baptismal waters. What do we say? Buried with Christ in baptism, risen to newness of life. Right? There, there is this, and, and that's a, a direct quote from Romans 6, 3 through 5, which says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were submerged. That's what the word baptism means. Submersion. That's very clear. We're, that's why we're Baptist. Submersion. That's what the word means. Okay, so, so it, it, he was buried. He was uh, put down. He was submerged into death. We were buried, therefore, with him in ba- by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism is this picture. Matter of fact, this is so central to Peter's message that some have mistakenly referred to Peter as a baptismal teaching. That the whole book of 1 Peter is about is a, is a, a precursor to baptism. It's something that they would have read prior to believers being baptized so that they understood what was happening. I don't necessarily think that was the truth, but I think that baptism was significant as significant for Peter as it was for Paul. And for both of them, he sees this picture of crucifixion and resurrection and his life and in our life as a declaration of victory. Now that may seem silly, right? That, that baptism is a declaration of victory. But that is, that is indeed what it is, and we're going to see this as we go throughout it. But, but what he's doing here, and I bring this out so that when we get to it here in a minute, you'll understand it. But what he's doing is he's, he's laying the foundation for this understanding. Christ's plan was, was included to die for our sins and be risen that he might give you and I life. Did that happen? I can 
Come on. Did that happen? Was Christ buried and risen? Yes. If that is indeed true, if that is what we declare, if we indeed sing victory in Jesus, then we know the battle has already been won. We know that it's already been done on our behalf. Now you say, well, what is the significance of that? Well, think about that when you're in the middle of suffering. Think about that when you're being persecuted. Think about that when your, your body is, is falling apart and you know that it's, a, it's an effect of sin. Not your personal sin, but the fall. Think about that, those things when we understand when life seems to be crumbling around us. And we understand that Christ has already declared, I know things are crumbling around you, but I've already won. I, I know things don't seem right, but it's already been settled. So how do we know that this is the case? Well, we see, we see Christ being crucified and risen on our behalf. Do you see your suffering as a way to earn your righteousness, or do you see it as a blessing from God, as an opportunity to rely on the truthfulness of God, even when it's uncomfortable? See, there's too many of us that want to... I, I'm one of them. We're self-proclaimed legalists. We want to check off the boxes, and suffering is one more of those boxes that we can say, yeah, I've endured that, so, so I must be right with God. No, no, I've endured that because I am right with God. It, it is not a, 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 a um, earning, it is a declaration that God already earned this for me. That's why I can go ahead and endure this. We work backwards. God has already accomplished our victory. Does Christ's suffering produce in you a heart of worship for what he has done on our behalf? Or does it produce in you a desire to earn something for yourself? I pray that it produces worship, and that is why we proceed to Christ's proclamation of victory in verses 19 through the beginning of 20. It says, In which... Now, before I go any further, if you've got your Bible with you, you can see that that refers to, hopefully, the Spirit that I said was the Holy Spirit before that. In the Spirit, He was, he was made alive through the Spirit, is what I, is what I told you a moment ago. Uh, um, made alive in the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Thank you, Peter. So, he goes, it, it's in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that this is accomplished. And now, some of your translations are going to say, he descended. And, and the reason the, the, the authors translated that is there, there were some church historians that believed that, that Christ descended into the pits of hell and preached another message, giving people an opportunity to repent again. That is not what this passage is saying. Nowhere else in the New Testament would it ever agree with that. And remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So if no other passage would agree with that, 
we either have to think Peter was out of his mind, which I don't believe, or we have to think that that's not what Peter meant. He meant something, he meant something else. So, so when we see this, the word literally means go. He, he go, or he went, would be the English appropriate translation. He, he went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, in order to give this context, we have to look at Noah, right? We have to understand what was happening with Noah. Does anybody remember the story of Noah in Genesis 6? If you have your Bible, you can, you can hold your place in 1 Peter and turn there. It's important that we understand this if we're going to understand this passage. All right, Genesis 6, verses 1 and following. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them. Now, these are the descendants of Adam, right? And man, he has daughters, and they're born to him. And the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, that 120 years is what is most commentators would agree is that's the time from when God declared he was going to destroy the earth till he fulfilled the flood, okay? Because if you look after this, people like live to be like 500 and 600. And so it's not like he's limiting all man's life to, I mean, Noah lives to be 600 and something after this. So, um, but, but he's saying, okay, so man is sinful. He's so sinful that I'm, I'm only going to live with them for another 120 years and then I'm going to destroy them. Okay, so, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, or some translations say the giants, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out, or I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So now, notice what's happening in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, I don't have time to... That's another difficult passage, but I, we have to go to it in order to understand this. So I don't have time to delve into who the Nephilim were and the mighty men of old, but, but we, we, we do need to understand that the, the sons of God um, are, are oftentimes referred to as angels and the fallen angels who have decided to disobey God and, um, and join in with men, and somehow they have created these children that are powerful. And, and you may think of the man who was bound by many chains, and no man could bind him, right? The man in the tombs of Gethsemane. Of, uh, Gethsemane. Uh, the man in the tombs who, who Jesus goes and cast out into the pigs. Remember uh, that man? He, he was unable to be bound. His strength was beyond anybody they could imagine. He was not in his right mind. He was 
renowned or known for that. Okay, we see this example. Jesus, or God, is so displeased with man that he decides he's going to destroy them. Now, why would God do that? Because there was only wickedness in his heart at all times. Continuously. That's rough. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. So you see that the, the majority of, of people are so overwhelmingly wicked that he's going to destroy all of them, but there are a few that he is going to save. So he picks Noah, and he goes to Noah, and it's thought that Noah had uh, approximately 70 years to build this ark. Okay? So uh, I'm throwing out an approximate because we don't know exact, but that's the, the, the thought that he had from this time, that there was 70 years for him to build this ark. So for 70 years, these wicked people are coming by and asking Noah why he's built an ark. Now, in case that doesn't sound strange to you, there had never been rain. Never. Up until this time, we know that there has never been rain. No rain. So they're coming by thinking, why is this guy building a boat in the middle of the land? Right? What? What? Why is this guy, you know, there's not like trucks to haul it to the ocean. Okay? Why is this guy building this boat in the middle of the land? And, and I, I don't know how many of you have maybe seen the play in, in Springfield uh, of, of Noah and the Ark, but, um, and Branson, sorry, and Branson of Noah and the Ark. Uh, but you, in, the, in that play, there's a point in which these people continually come to him, and he is heralding for them to save themselves. And, and the most troubling part of all of it is when they go in the ark and the door slams shut and you hear people on the other side banging let me in let me in they're going to be destroyed they're they're going to be decimated for their for their disobedience but god had been patient with them for 70 years while noah said you better get ready. It's going to happen. You better be prepared for these things. Now we see in, in this passage that, uh, and I, I'm sorry for the side reel, but that, that helps us make sense of this. Now we see in this passage that it says, in which the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, I believe that's referring to those wicked men in the days of Noah, and the reason I think that is because it says because they formally did not obey in the days of Noah. I mean, that's just the text, okay? So I think it's those wicked men that he's referring to, that were wickedness in their hearts altogether, while the ark is being prepared. Now you may say, well, what? what? I don't understand this. They thought he was crazy until the day it started raining. And then Noah was proven right. Noah's righteousness was proven by God's declaration of judgment. 
Noah's righteousness was proven when God destroyed the earth except for seven, eight, counting Noah. So th there is there's this few. So what does it mean when he says he proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Well, hear these words from 2 Peter, second book that Peter writes would help us understand the first. Okay, so 2 Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, sound familiar? But cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, or prison, as 1 Peter says, to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth of the ungodly world. You see, Peter considered Noah a preacher. Noah was a preacher saying, be prepared. And in the New Testament, we have in Acts, the apostles are saying, the days of God's patience are over. His judgment is coming. Christ, when he rose from the grave, was declaring to all of those people that had been disobedient that the time of judgment had come. Victory has been won. His righteousness had been declared. It had been proven. Thus, Jude, one, Jude only has one chapter, verses 6 through 7 says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, that is referring once again to the people in Noah's day, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That judgment was when Christ rose from the grave and declared victory over all earthly powers. That's why in verse 22 of, chapter, of 1 Peter chapter 3, don't skip there yet, but we're gonna, I just want you to see how this relates. It says, Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. These, these things are declaring victory. Victory has been won on our behalf. And I know all of that sounds extremely confusing, but I'm trying my best to declare it in clarity. But... Christ, when he rose from the dead, declared victory over all of those in days past, just like the ark had declared victory over the wickedness of men. It had declared something. It had declared that they were disobedient. It had declared that God was indeed righteous, that he was indeed the Son of God, that he was indeed everything he claimed to be, and offered everything that he claimed to offer. When you and I are in the midst of suffering, we can be sure that the God of Noah and the God of Peter are the same God. That Christ has not changed, but yet he has been showing us time and again until we get to Christ, how he is going to save his people and declare their righteousness. The question is, do we want to continue to put up our arms of rebellion? Saying, Christians are crazy. Christ was crazy. He's, he's, he did. Look at what he's asking us to do. Die to yourself 
take up my cross? He's asking for some radical things. Are we going to continue in our arms of rebellion and say, I'm not going to do that part. I'm not going to do the hard stuff, just the easy stuff. Or are we going to seek to, to submit to Christ? Are we going to seek to, to find ourselves underneath His banner? The victory of Christ is a blessed thing that should cause His children to rejoice. However, it is not accomplished in name only, but also in power. That's why he continues in verses 20 through 21, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. You see, it wasn't just judgment. The same waters that provided judgment provided salvation. The same waters that provided judgment, provided salvation in the same way that the same death of Christ and resurrection of Christ declared judgment on all those who would not believe and victory for all those who would place their faith in Christ. That is what we have here. In, a, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Stop there for just a minute. Baptism, which corresponds to what? The waters of the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to the flood. It, it, it is a type or a picture. And, and a lot of people get caught up in this, but it's really a beautiful picture. See, the, the flood was a declaration Baptism is a declaration. It corresponds to what God said he would do, he does. But now we have a better fulfillment in Jesus himself. Baptism, which corresponds to this, which, which is a representation, or uh, the flood, which was a representation now fulfilled in baptism, corresponds to the floodwaters. How? Because it now saves you. Now, for us Baptists, that should make us uncomfortable. The idea that baptism would save us is uncomfortable because we know that you have been saved by grace through faith, and this was not a gift of your own doing. It was a free gift of God, right? I mean, that is our, our anthem from Ephesians. So when we see this, we have to think, well, how does it save us? Well, he clarifies for us, not as a removal of dirt from the body, now, there's a lot of ways that you can take this, but let me just break it down for you. It is different than a bath. Baptism is different than a bath. It's different than being dunked in the pool. That's just a mean prank. It's different, right? It's not the same thing. There's nothing magical about the waters that now it cleanses me from all the dirt that I had. Because if it was merely just a cleansing of dirt, how often would we need to be baptized? Well, as often as we need to take a bath. Right? I mean, that, that is... So it's not that way. It doesn't save us in the fact that it, it somehow removes those things. Well, now, if we understand this to be spiritually speaking, how often would we need to be baptized if it was a cleansing of our sins? Every time that... Martin Luther went to the confessional, he would have needed to be baptized, right? 
Man, I mean, that, those waters would have been well used. I mean, if that was the case, man, this thing, we just have to keep it full. That's all I would do is just stand up there and baptize people all week long. Just, just here we go. Just cleansing sins. But that's what he says. This is not how it does it. It's not like it, it removes the dirt. Literally, the word is from the flesh. It's the same word that is referred to in uh, verse 18 as he dies in the flesh. So, so it's, not a, uh, it's, it's not a removal of that. So how does it save you? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. You see, baptism is a declaration. And I know I've, I've gone way past, so I'm just trying to wrap this up here. Baptism is a declaration. It's a declaration that we have been saved, that we have been, as I stated earlier, buried with Christ, risen to a new life. And as we go through those baptismal waters, we are declaring that we stand right with God. That's why when somebody comes forward and says, I want to be saved, and we say a prayer with them, and we, we have to be very cautious that they understand what they're doing in that moment, that they're saying, indeed, I am right with God. I, I am standing in good standing with God, that they understand those things, for it would be dangerous for someone who merely understood the facts but had not accepted the faith to enter those waters and declare that they were saved. How many people have declared, I'm a believer, and fallen off, and are much worse than they were before? So now we have this baptism, which is an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, baptism refers to Jesus Christ. It, it, it refers to the resurrection to being buried with Christ in baptism, risen to a new life. The question then is, have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? Have you declared to God and the church that you have been joined to Christ and putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're now living by the Spirit of Christ? If not, we are in disobedience to God's Word. It doesn't matter our age. It doesn't matter how scared we are of the waters or how scared we are to be in front of somebody. Baptism is a declaration. It is the first step of obedience that we might see in the book of Acts that, that declares that we are right with God. Was your baptism merely an outward act, like taking a bath or getting dunked in the pool? Was it something that was meaningless to you? Because that is not Christian baptism. Or are you living and the victory of Christ that you declared when you were baptized in those waters. You see, Christ has already settled this. He settled it so much that verse 22 declares his place of victory. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? It's done. See, in, in the Old Testament, when you got done working, it's kind of like you men when you get done working and you go home and you sit in that chair, right? It's that, it's that, or, or, or you ladies, when you, you finish everything and you, whoo, and you sit down at the end of the night. For us, it's when the children go to bed. You know, you sit down after the kids go to bed. Ah, it's done. It's over. I've defeated the day. I, it may have not been pretty, 
but I finished it. And the same way when Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he has subjected angels, authorities, powers, anything that you can imagine, everything is under his rule. Thus, we who find ourselves in his victory also have victory. Those of us who have identified with his burial and resurrection also have victory in Christ Jesus. That's why we must rest in Christ, and he must be seated in our hearts, on the throne of our hearts, and we must be in obedience to him. So I'm just going to end with these three points. I'll say them quickly, and we'll be done. But how do you fight a battle that's already been won? Well, first you do it by expressing faith by declaring that these things are true? Are you shying away from your responsibilities in the Christian life because of fear? Or are you expressing faith? Number two, exemplify obedience. Exemplify obedience. Yes, be baptized, but exemplify obedience in living out the baptism and continuing to declare victory over sin. Finally, exalt Christ continually declaring his praise in your heart. I apologize for the nature of this sermon. It's not the kind of sermon I like to preach because I felt like I'm teaching more than preaching, but I hope that you understand from this that, that in the same way that Christ worked in the Old Testament, we see him working in the New Testament, now in a much clearer way. And we can declare victory even in the midst of suffering. Bow with me in prayer.